Thank you. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. I'm uh, just really excited about being with you again. Um, You've let me come back here so many times. I think what you're trying to do is give me a chance to practice that I've improved, maybe, but I don't know, whatever. So Matthew chapter 5, we're going to spend our time uh, in these five services we have in the Beatitudes. Um, I've gotten into the Sermon on the Mount about a year and a half ago, and uh, uh, just probably will never get out for the rest of my life. So we're, uh, I want to share some of that uh, investigation with you. And uh, Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes actually begin at verse 3 and uh, work their way down through and include verse 12. Uh, we're calling this section uh, of the Beatitudes the formation of the kingdom because it's here he gives us the very foundation the fundamental, the shape, how it's formed, what makes up the kingdom of God. And your concept of the kingdom is really influenced strongly by the Beatitudes. And I would like to uh, just read verse 2 and verse 3, which is, uh, verse 3 is the first Beatitude. Here's what it says. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, these are the words of Jesus. This is not an evangelist's words. This is not preacher talk. These are the words of Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Reading it again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word beatitude is not in the scriptures. It's not referred to at all. It's a literary structure. Proverb is a literary structure. But proverb is mentioned in the scriptures. Proverb is a simple truth. Or proverb is a complex truth brought down to a simple formula. It's a bumper sticker kind of thing. It's a whole truth that's stripped of everything that isn't necessary and summarized down to the kind of a deal where you can memorize it, where it's memorable, where it sticks in your mind, where you can put it on a bumper sticker, where it rhymes or doesn't rhyme, but it just fits together and it just captures you and it's a proverb. Beatitude, altogether different. And while the word is not used in the scripture, the Beatitudes are all over the Old Testament and simply are here as they start the Sermon on the Mount. And it's very significant that Jesus, an Old Testament individual in that culture, in that hour, would stand up and start the whole fundamental layout of the kingdom of God and his ministry and would, and would begin it with this Beatitude idea. The beatitude idea, the, the, the grammar structure is always a pronouncement of blessing. So a beatitude always starts with the idea of blessed. And the word blessed does not mean happy, does not mean happy. And as we said earlier, if, you're, if your scripture says happy, it translates blessed as happy, get another Bible. Because it isn't, it's awful. That's awful. This is not about happiness. In fact, it's really interesting that when you come to the scriptures, the scripture never encourages you to be happy. The whole idea of happiness is not found in the Bible. God doesn't give a rip whether you're happy or not. (laughs) Isn't that encouraging? (laughs) Joy, peace, 
Those concepts all over the New Testament, not happiness, because happiness is about fate. Happiness is about happy-go-lucky. Happiness is about chance. Sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not. Depends on my mood, depends on the weather. Hey, happiness, no, Jesus never talked about that kind of stuff. So the beatitude is a pronouncement of blessing. It's literally a whacking you on the back saying, oh, congratulations. Oh, you are so fortunate. Whoa, isn't this what you're, well, hallelujah, good for you. This is, hey, you have made it. You're there. Now, one of the most significant things that you have to keep in mind constantly about the Sermon on the Mount is that after three chapters of a sermon, And this is a long sermon, three chapters long, aren't they all? So here's a sermon that's three chapters long. And at the end of the sermon, he tells this parable about the wise man and the foolish man and the house that he built. And then he goes into an explanation of how the crowd reacted. And in chapter 7, verse 28, he says that the crowd responded in astonishment. They were astonished. It's really an interesting word. It's the Greek word explezo. Ek intensifies. Plezo means to knock something out. So in this case, it's talking about their mind. So a literal translation of explezo could be they were knocked out of their minds. In other words, what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount was literally a ball bat to the brain. It literally knocked them out of their senses. When the sermon was done, they looked at him and said, What? What did you say? Could this? Hey, did, you, did he say what I think he said? I mean, it was just they had never, ever, ever heard anything like this. What was it that they had never, ever heard before? It was the fact that Jesus was giving them a whole new approach to the kingdom of God. All they had known up to this time was the Old Covenant. All they had known was the Old Testament system of laws and ceremony and doing and performance and work your way up. But then all the world systems were like that. You started down here and you worked your way up to this level right here. And you tried harder, you disciplined yourself, and as you grew and as you were coming along and as you were, finally you would make it here. Jesus came along, whacked them on the back and said, Whoa, you're there! And what every other world system said you had to earn and merit and work your way up to, Jesus handed to you and gives to you. That is phenomenal. And he's whacking them on the back saying, whoa, you're there. Now you can see by the very first beatitude why they would be knocked out of their senses. Look at this thing. Blessed are the poor. That's crazy. That doesn't make any sense at all. And the condition of the blessing is established in poverty. Now, nobody in their right mind thinks that way. Blessed are the rich. Yes, thank you, Jesus. Blessed are those who have everything they need and want. Yes, thank you, Jesus. Blessed are those who are, have all the materialism. Blessed Jesus. See, that I can buy into, but blessed are the poor, it's worse than you think. There's two Greek words in the New Testament for poverty. One is pentecross. That Greek word means poor, like the widow. Remember the widow who was praying and she had two mites. She is absolutely poverty stricken. She only has two mites and she took them and put them in the offering plate. Two mites. 
That's Pentecost, but that's not this word. This word is petahos. Petahos means not even two mites. See, the widow was poverty stricken, but not this. This is worse. This is extreme. This word has, comes from the idea of cringing, shame. This word has the idea of crouching, covering your face, holding out your hand. Don't want anybody to know who I am. Won't make it another day. Have absolutely no resource at all. Absolutely stripped down. Poverty stricken. Can't make it another hour. Won't survive at all. Unless you help me, I am absolutely helpless, destitute. I have no resource whatsoever. That's this word. There is no stronger word in the New Testament for poverty than this word right here. Absolutely destitute. That's the word. And he's whacking you on the back saying, congratulations. You're totally stripped down. You are absolutely helpless. You have no resource at all. Well, you're a loser. Yes. That's the craziest thing you ever heard of in your life. See, I came this morning, dragged myself out of bed, came down to church, wanted a little encouragement, telling me I couldn't make it, I can't be what I ought to be, everything's going to be all right. You stand up there, well, you loser! It knocked them out of their senses. And the interesting thing about the word is that you'll note there's no qualifications it's an unqualified term. In other words, it's not poor because, well, you didn't have a proper upbringing. It's not, oh, you're destitute. You're destitute because, well, abusive background. We feel sorry. It's not, well, yeah, your dad dropped you twice on your head when you were a kid. That's your problem. See, none of that is here. You know, it's, it's just, you're poor. It isn't that you're poor because you sin. Oh, you're poor because you failed every step along the line and you've just, you've wasted all your resource. It's not none of that. He whacks you on the back. Congratulations. You're absolutely poverty stricken. Why? He made you that way. What? He designed you to be that way. What? You mean it's a good thing? Yeah, congratulations! What are you talking about? God designed me to be helpless? God designed me to be poverty stricken? God designed me to be absolutely without resource? Yeah, it was his creation for you. Why would he do that? Oh, as you get into it, you begin to discover the amazing truth. In fact, right here in the first, first beatitude, the amazing truth is here you are in your helplessness. Here you are absolutely destitute. Here you are a loser. Here you are. And here he is in his overwhelming resource. And you were made to be helpless so that he and his resource and you and your helplessness could come together. And when you come together, you know what happens? The kingdom is formed. That the kingdom is not a location to where you go. The heaven is a location. No problem. A place we're going. Hallelujah. But this is not that. We're talking about the kingdom. And the kingdom is not a location that you go to. It's not a place to be. The, lo- the, the, the kingdom is a relationship 
relationship of his overwhelming resource and your helplessness. And in the embrace of those two, you literally become the kingdom. See, he isn't the kingdom. I'm not the kingdom. We're the kingdom. And together we form a new creature in Jesus. Jesus in me forms a new creature that he calls the kingdom of heaven. Whoa. My helplessness, his resource. You find this in imagery in the Old Testament everywhere. For instance, if you come to the genealogy, I know you had your devotions in that this morning. In Matthew chapter 1, he gives 16 verses of the genealogy of Jesus. And then when he gets done with the 16 verses, he summarizes the genealogy in verse 17. And he breaks the genealogy, the whole genealogy from Abraham right down to Jesus. He breaks it into three parts. There's the first third, 14 generations. The second third, 14 generations. The third third, 14 generations. 42 generations split into thirds. And the first third, guess what the first third is all about? No king. Well, that's not exactly right. God was their king. They didn't have a man king. They had no man king. And in the first third of Israel's nation in their life, God was their total supply. It's a beautiful picture. They're in the wilderness. Well, they're helpless. I know. Here's all this herds and hordes of people. They're just absolutely, well, good night. How are they going to survive? Water out of a rock, son. Quail out of the bush, boy. I'm talking manna coming down from the sky, son. I'm talking about their shoes don't wear out. Wouldn't you love that, ladies? <gasps> One pair never Oh, never mind. So here you got clothes don't wear out. Here you got all this stuff going on. And what, who is their overwhelming provider? Oh, God is. God's their total provider. They are absolutely helpless. They don't do anything for themselves. And yet they're in the middle of everything. How do you explain that? They participate. They're active. They're doing all this stuff. And yet, hey, God is in the middle. They're doing it together. They defeat their enemies. And how is their enemy defeated? Everybody knows that the enemies of Israel are only defeated, only defeated by their sovereign God. And Yet they participate in all of it. Who could come up with a plan like walking around a city seven times and the walls fall in? And in their overwhelming helplessness, the sovereignty of an overwhelming God and his provision literally came together with their helplessness. And when that united in that relationship, that's an imagery in the Old Testament of the dynamic of the fullness of the Spirit that God has planned for you. You weren't made to do things for him. Did you get it? You weren't made to do things for him. Oh, you're helpless. How could you do anything for him? He wants to come in the amazingness of his person and literally unite with you. And in that unite whole new creature whole new state of existence a whole new being so unique it's a new species of humanity called sons of God poor poor absolutely poor poverty stricken that's the condition now, did you note the connection in the passage? The connection in the passage is that poverty, the poorness, is connected with the Spirit. So we're not talking about materialism at all. 
Isn't that great? We're talking about in your spirit that the poverty, the destitution, the absolute helplessness that I have no resource at all is where? It's in the deep internal essence of the spirit of my life. The word spirit is really interesting study in itself because it literally is the principle of life. Uh, when you go back into the Old Testament, you discover in the Old Testament that man is a dichotomy in creation, in structure. In other words, two parts. God made man out of two parts. He literally, in the creation scene, spoke all the worlds into existence. All the creation came out of the speaking of God. And when he got done with all the speaking, then he got off his throne, came down, got his hands dirty, and literally formed out of that only part of the creation where God literally got involved, physically got involved, And he literally formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed body and breathed into man the breath of life, spirit, and stood back and said, whoa, man became a living soul. You don't have a soul. You are a soul. That's significant. And your soul is made up of what? Body and spirit. Now, however you want to shape the spirit is okay with me. Personality is involved in spirit. Mind, will, and emotion involved in spirit. All that's going on in personality structure. All of that that's taking place, it's all right with me. All that you want to put in the spirit thing is okay. But it's body and spirit, so you are a total thing. You are a total match. You are a united deal. Body and spirit. That really helped me as a teenager. Found this out in Psalms 139. Used to walk around like this. As a teenager. Well, it's just so big. It just sticks out there, you know. You look in the mirror and it's all you see. It's just. Finally, I found out made by God. Really helped me. See, David says in Psalms 139, he was back in my mother's womb, before my mother's womb, mixing my substance together. He said, I want a little of that. I want a little of that. Oh, i got to have some of that. Oh, we've got to have some. And he put me, he said, I've never made anybody like this before. And he put me on the shelf and, and said, I'm going to leave him there until. And then he said, I'm, he didn't say to an angel, hey, out there in a the shed, there's 25 bodies in that shed. Get one of them for this guy. No, he tailor-made my body for my personality, and I'm a mat set. Isn't that neat? Now, you've done some things to your body, so don't blame me for that. But what I'm talking about is this mat set stuff. And that you are a total. That's why what you do with your body matters. You do realize that 10 million years from now, you will still have that body. New, okay, transformed, all right, glorified, if you're a Christian, yeah, but still your body. Because you're a mad set, and this physical stuff never goes away. You look mad. (laughs) Wow. Because you're a mad set. So in creation, what have you got? You've got this body being formed, and then you've got this spirit breathed into you, which is the principle of life. So whatever it is that's in you that makes you live, whatever the core of your system, whatever produces you, whatever is your attitude, what, what, 
forms your attitude, your perspective of life, how you operate, the spring of your existence, whatever causes you, whatever sources you, whatever produces you, at the, de- at the gut level of your living experience, that's what he's talking about. And he says, there at the spirit level of your life, guess what? You're absolutely poverty-stricken, helpless, can't pull it off. When I was a teenager, this was like back in 1820, we, we, had, we had this concept of inferiority complex. That was the language. Inferiority complex. Everybody was worried about growing up with an inferiority complex. We changed the language. Yeah, what happened, I think, was we found out we didn't have a complex. We were real just inferior. But anyhow, we began to talk self-esteem, self-value, those kind of terms. James Dobson wrote a book and said what ha- a teenager bases his self-esteem, his value or her value on three, one of three things. One thing you base your self-value upon, number one, good looks. One of the beautiful people. You work hard at it. Yeah. Takes hours. Yeah. Oh, bad hair day. Oh, everybody's looking at me. But if you're one of the beautiful people you're in, everybody clusters around you, you have sexual appeal, everybody likes you. Now, if you don't have sexual appeal and you don't have beauty, but you're smart, you got to pass those tests somehow. Somebody's got to be the brains to feed us the information so you can still get in. And if you don't have brains and you don't have beauty... Ah, but you got money, you can buy because somebody's got to pay for the parties. You know what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, go beyond all of that and go down to the core of your existence. And at the core of your existence, you are helpless. Now, maybe you're going to react the way I reacted to this. My reaction to this is, nah, I'm not buying that. Because if I went to a psychiatrist, the psychiatrist would say, you've got a complex. You've got a psychological condition that you're proposing that we are helpless. We are losers, and that's a psychological... If you... you, felt that you were really helpless you were you would be insecure all the time you would have total fear you would be unable to operate and that would be an overwhelming phobia that would be a complex in your life so what we've done ladies and gentlemen is we've taken our kid and we put a ball glove in his hand and we've trained him and we taught him how to hit a ball over a fence and whoo he's got one thing he can do for sure and he's got one thing that he really shines it so he's not helpless and how do you know you're not helpless because I got something I can't do everything I admit that but there are some things I'm really good at and there is one thing I can really excel at and I'm really good at this and I'm really good at that and I'm really good at this but he says wait a minute Jesus says wait a minute go beyond all these band-aids all these things you formed out here that you make that make you feel like you're worth something that make you feel valuable that make you feel like you're really something you got it all together that make you feel successful that the world all applauses and go down to the very core of your existence and here at the heart level at the spirit level you are 
helpless. Because you see, while I can hit a ball over a fence and collect a million dollar contract for it, I can't get along with my wife. And I can't get my body drives under control. And I need anger management classes. And I got people I can't get along with. And all of these things out here are camouflages of me covering up the fact of the door, the core issue of my life, which is I am absolutely, I'm a loser, man. I'm helpless. I have no resource whatsoever. And that's the core of my existence, he says. Helpless. Isn't that interesting? Helpless. Well, preacher, I'm a fixer. How on earth could you ever be a fixer when you are helpless? Well, I go into a room and the picture is cockeyed. I got to straighten it. Everybody's life. I have to correct them. I have to, I got the, how could you possibly have that attitude when at the core of your own existence, you're helpless? Well, preacher, I'm a self-made man. What? How could you possibly claim that when at the core of your life you are destitute? Unable. Helpless. Again, You're not that way because you sinned. You're not that way because you came from an abusive background. You're not that way because you've got a psychological problem. You know why you're in that state? He made you that way. So that his resource could come. And in the filling of his resource, you and him together... Could this be the design of our system? Could this be how we were made to function? Could this be the way we were to operate in our society? Could this be what brings life together? My helplessness, his overwhelming resource, and when the two of those things, could you recognize that? And the two of those things get together, a new creature is literally created, and in the forming of that relationship, my life, his life, that the kingdom of God is not me and him, it's us. It's those two things together. And in the overwhelming presence, this is the new covenant. This is what Jesus was was himself. This is what he is proposing in the whole flow of what Christianity is going about. This is what he's going to die for. This is what the whole deal of the cross is about. This is the fundamental of everything he dreams about for your life. That somehow in the admitting of your helplessness and the embracing of your helplessness, he could come in the overwhelming resource of his being and the two of you could get together in that intimacy that he would call the kingdom so do you see what he's doing in verse 3 the first beatitude he's whacking you on the back congratulations why you're helpless and you've been filled with the overwhelming resource of his person and you know what that that makes you now you are the kingdom 
You and him have become the kingdom, a new species. Well, congratulations. And the kingdom is not something that you work your way up to. The kingdom is not be good, try harder, work, pray more, read the Bible more. You'll finally, the kingdom is an intimate relationship of his presence in your helplessness. And when he fills your helplessness, the two of you to get together, wow, a whole new being is created that literally flows into your world and shakes the foundations of hell in your community. That's us, isn't it? Do you know what that would do? That would eliminate all jealousy. Competition would be gone. Power struggles. Who's going to get their own way? That would all be gone. You know what that would do to marriage? Came to my wife one day. Had some friends that had old cars. Back in that day, a 1938 was an old car. Saw this 1938 Chevy. I wanted to buy it. Came to my wife, said, we're going to buy that Chevy. I want to buy that car. She said, no, we're not. I said, yes, I'm going to buy that Chevy. She said, we don't need that Chevy. And we don't have the money to buy that Chevy. We're not buying that car. You know what I did? I looked her right in the eye and said... Now I have to buy that car whether I want to or not. Just to show you who's boss. Wasn't that stupid? What was wrong with me? Can you embrace your helplessness? And be filled with Him. See, the disaster, ladies and gentlemen, is we, take, we, don't, we don't embrace our helplessness. We embrace Him, but we don't embrace our helplessness. And we develop a religion then that crawls its way up. 
and we get our warm fuzzies, not from the wonder of his presence, not from, oh, he has filled me, not from what, oh, look what he's doing in my life. We, we derive our, our, our warm, our security, our everything's okay, I'm going to heaven from what? Oh, look how much I serve him. Look how often I preach. Look how many Sunday school classes. I, look how much money I've given. Look how valuable I am to him, which is a camouflage of my helplessness. And we've developed a whole system whereby we pat ourselves on the back and we prayed ourselves and we have power struggles and we get all upset when people don't recognize how, how valuable we are. Spelled my name wrong in the bulletin again. And all of that kind of stuff bugs us. Why? Because we've not embraced our helplessness. See, a man who's helpless, who's covering his face, and he's begging and won't make it another moment. He doesn't give a rip whether you, whether you spell his name right in a bulletin or not, man. Because this is not about names and bulletins, and this is not about position. And this is not, it would literally wipe out. If we had this, it would literally wipe out the politics of the church, man. We would wipe out our, our bickering. We would wipe out our divisions. It would just be gone. Why? Because we're a bunch of people who are, oh, who have been filled with the wonder of his. And you understand, when my helplessness and his overwhelming resource come together, wow, I am the kingdom. And when your helplessness and his overwhelming resource come together, you are the kingdom. And when I'm the kingdom and you're the kingdom, woo, community is established. How are you going to end this service, preacher? Altar call. Oh, not going to the altar. Why not? Well, my wife will think I'm telling her she's right. <laughs> I'm going to do that. <laughs> you didn't get it, did you? It's not about being right. Wouldn't it be interesting if you're so right you're wrong? Because at the core of your existence, you've never embraced your helplessness. And I know some people can't kneel. It's okay. Physically can't kneel. It's okay. But see, there's something about getting out of your seat and coming. Man, I need help. I need help. Jesus. Knocked them out of their senses. I think it's done the same thing to me. I spent years, Jesus. Covering my helplessness with how much I prayed and how much I read the Bible and how valuable I was to you and how much I served. And Could I come to you this morning broken, helpless, unable, 
I can't. And God, why is that so hard for me to admit? Because I got a dozen things going on in my life right now that I can't handle, that I don't know what to do about, that are way over by, beyond my... I just, I'm not, I don't... I got things going on in my family I don't know what to do about. I got things going on in the church I don't know what to do about. God, I'm in over my head. Why is it so hard for me to get on my knees and say, I'm helpless, I can't? And to embrace you in the intimacy of your presence. become the godly person you built me to be and to embrace the reality that I was not built to be independent I was built to be dependent on who you are Jesus speak to our teenagers who are so caught up in peer pressure and superficial things that smell of success and may every one of them deal with the deep internal reality the basic helplessness poor poverty stricken in the inner heart of their being help our young married couples oh God help our moms and dads dear Jesus what we've taught our kids We haven't taught them to embrace helplessness. We've taught them to embrace success. Heads are bowed. I want to crawl my way to an altar today. This is not it being an example for you. This is not to lead the way. This is an admitting. I have looked into the core of my life. And I have found my knowledge is not adequate. My discipline isn't good enough. My education won't pull this off. I am helpless. And in the embrace of his person, things become what they should be. For I was built for this. Anybody want to join me in admitting you're helpless? 
altars open.